Well, as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen Jesus outperforming ministry. He's been doing a number of miracles, and you'll recall the disciples have been with him, watching and learning. As we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 9, what we're going to see is that it's time for them to solo. Now, when I say solo, that's a figure of speech, which means it's time for them to apply the things they've been learning. Because as you look at Mark chapter 6, you see they were not sent out alone, but they went in pairs. And more importantly than having a partner in ministries, as we're going to see in a moment here in Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus gives them his power and authority. So I invite you to look with me as we read Luke 9, 1 through 2. There it says, And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons, and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Now, power is the ability to do something, and authority is the right to do it. Power is the ability to do something, and authority is the right to do it. Let me illustrate it from my days when I was a policeman. Imagine that you were walking down the street one dark night, and as you uh, came around a corner, this group of uh, criminals, thugs, step out of the shadows, and they say to you, give us all your money. Now, at that moment, they don't have any authority or right to your money, but they have the power to take it, don't they? Either through threats or fear. And as you're reaching into your purse or your wallet to pull out your money, uh, I pull up in my police car. And I step out, and as I do so, as a policeman, I have the authority to make them stop and to arrest them. But that authority alone is empty if I don't have the power to fulfill it through the weapons that I'm carrying, through the ability to call in extra help to uh, initiate the arrest. And when Jesus says that he's given his disciples power and authority, he's given them both the right and the ability to do it. In our day, Jesus has given us power and authority to do ministry as well. If you've read the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, there it says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, you may have noticed in the Great Commission there was something a little different than what we find in the commission given to the disciples here in Luke 9. In Luke 9, they were told to go and preach the good news, something the Great Commission tells us to do. But there he also emphasized that they were to do healings. Now, that's not in the Great Commission. And the reason that they needed to heal people in that day is they had to, they had to have a way to authenticate their ministry. We heard from one of our missionaries that we support here this morning that he's working in an area where the gospel is not really known or accepted. And he mentioned a place where there was demonic activity. And the power of Jesus can overcome those things. The power of Jesus can authenticate the ministry. Now, in our day, we see a lot of people who report to do signs and wonders and miracles, some of which sadly are fake. The, the reason that we need to be careful when it comes to, to those who claim to do uh, miracles to authenticate who they are is Matthew twenty four twenty four tells us, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. We find other warnings in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 10 tells us, Satan can enable false ministers to do amazing things. 
So miracles alone do not authenticate a ministry. You see, the disciples in the first century, the apostles early on, didn't have what we have today, which is the word of God. This is our authority. This is what authenticates ministry. In fact, the New Testament tells us in in, uh, 1 John 2, verses 18 through 29, and again in 1 John 4, 1 through 6, that if you want to authenticate somebody's ministry, test what they're saying by the truth of God's word. And if it doesn't line up, then they are not speaking for God. Friends, if I ever share anything with you in a sermon or somebody is talking to you and says, thus saith the Lord, and they cannot show you in the 66 books of the Bible, then you need to reject it. Because this is how you authenticate somebody's ministry, not through signs and wonders and miracles and things. Certainly God can still do those things and does in places, but it's not needed in the first century, in the 21st century American church in which we minister. Now, as we talk about rejecting what is said, Jesus tells the disciples the way you are received will be both a provision from God as well as a proof that they've received the message uh, of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Look at Luke 9, 3 through 6. And he said to them, Take nothing for you on your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out, those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. You see, what's being said here is people will evidence their belief in the Messiah through the message of the disciples or the authenticating miracles, these, these healings that would take place. And he says, if somebody rejects the message, they're rejecting who Jesus is. And he says, therefore, you're to shake the dust off your feet. Now, those in the first century understood fully what was said here, because as Jews would walk around as they traveled, as they crossed over the border from a Gentile area back into a Jewish area like Galilee, that's where this ministry is taking place, what they would do is they would literally stop and shake all the dust off their clothing and and their sandals, because they said, we don't want to carry uh, any of this remnant into the area uh, that is under Jewish control, so to speak. And so what Jesus is saying is, even though you're in a Jewish area, if you have a town or a person or a place that rejects the message, what you need to do is show that they are not a part of uh, this, this message. They haven't received the Messiah, so they're just as lost as these Jews were saying the Gentiles were. He's saying as a physical sign, shake the dust off your feet to show them that they're under judgment for rejecting the message. Now, as the 12 went through the villages and towns, their their ministry, we see, is attracting a lot of attention, even that of Herod. Herod, as we see here in verses 7 through 9, is called the Tetrarch. That's the governor. He's the highest official over this region in Galilee. So Luke 9, 7 through 9 tells us, departing, they began to go throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. But who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see Jesus. Now, it's clear here that Herod's conscience is bothering him. If you've read the story of Herod, you know that uh, he took a woman he shouldn't have as his wife. And John the Baptist was preaching about that publicly. She said, I don't want John talking about us anymore. I want him imprisoned. And then she ultimately had John beheaded by Herod. 
And, and Herod uh, says, now this guy has shown up. Some are saying, maybe it's, it's John the Baptist who's come back to judge me, to speak against me. But it says he's confused because he's hearing, the, he's hearing about these miracles of mercy. He's hearing about this message of mercy and not wrath. And he says, if God is sending this guy back to judge me, then he wouldn't be talking about mercy and grace. And so he's curious. It's piqued his interest. But notice here, Jesus doesn't go to see Herod because Christ knows Herod's curiosity is not about coming to receive him as the promised Messiah. He just wants to see a show. In fact, later in Luke, we're going to see when we get to chapter 13 and verses 31 through 32, the Jews are saying, hey, you better not go over in that area because Herod's out to get you. And Jesus says he calls this evil king a fox. He doesn't say, oh, well, this man needs to see me so he'll come to faith. Uh, He rails against him. And then later, Herod actually will see Christ when the trials take place when we get to Luke chapter 23. In verses 6 through 12, as Jesus stands uh, on trial before him in Luke chapter 23, Jesus will say nothing or do nothing in front of Herod. Because again, Jesus knows he doesn't care whether I'm the Messiah. He just wants to see a show. And so Jesus gives him nothing. But as Luke is telling us here, everybody is talking about what's happening. Some are saying, maybe it's John, maybe it's Elijah, maybe it's one of the prophets of the past. Whether it's the person on the street or the highest person in government, there's this buzz going on about the ministry that these disciples are doing. And Luke 9, 10 through 11 tells us when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all they had done. And taking them with him, Jesus withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. Now, you may not know this, but we've talked about the fact there are four different Gospels, and each one is speaking to a different audience. And as you look at what's recorded in the four Gospels, uh, different things are emphasized because it's speaking to a different audience. And what's interesting is there are only two miracles that are found in all four Gospels. Some are repeated in, in a couple or three even, but there's only two miracles that show up in all four Gospels. One is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we're going to celebrate next Sunday on Easter. And the other is the feeding of the 5,000, which is what we find uh, described as happening here in Luke chapter 9, verses 12 through 17. But what I want you to do, if you're using a, a book Bible, turn over to the left to the Gospel of Mark. And if you're in your phone, you can swipe over to that, that uh, part of the Bible app. Because in Luke chapter 6, we find the the most detailed of all the accounts. All the things that we find here in Luke 9 are mentioned. But I want us to look at Mark chapter 6. Because in Mark 6, we find the feeding of the 5,000. And we find it described in greater detail. As you look at Mark 6, 7, you you see uh, the same commission of the disciples. He sends them out. He gives them power and authority. Then as they return, we see the same thing as Luke just told us in Mark 6, 30. Because it says, And the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. So what happens is these guys have been out doing ministry, and they're excited. Great things have been happening. They've been casting out demons, healing people, seeing miraculous things. People are receiving the message. They come back, and and they're pumped, and they're telling Christ about everything they've been doing. And he sees they're excited, but he also sees they're exhausted. Jesus knows how exhausting ministry can be. Remember, he's fully God, but also fully man with the limitations of flesh. And there are times we see in the scripture where Jesus was just physically spent. 
Like in Matthew chapter 8, where he was so exhausted, he's asleep in the front of a boat and cold water is washing over him and he doesn't even stir. So he sees these guys and he says, you're tired and you need to come away for a time to rest. Uh, Look at Mark 6, 31 through 33. Come away by yourself to a lonely place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves, and the people saw them going, and many recognized them. And they ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. I want you to picture what's happening. Jesus says, okay, guys, we're going on a retreat. He loads them up on a boat. They, they get on the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is actually not that large of a body of water. You can see uh, in places to the center, certainly, uh, from the shore. And as they're, they're traveling up to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, this is a, a desolate area. There's a little fishing village called Bethsaida that's up there to the north. On the eastern shore is a very large city called Tiberias. Uh, on the west are the, uh, is the Decapolis. That means the ten cities. And as, as the boat is going up the, the sea, people are looking and pointing and saying, there's Jesus. And they're following the boat and they're running along the way. And people in these towns and villages and cities are saying, where are you going? We're following Jesus. And the crowd is growing and they're going. And, and as they get to this northern little place that was supposed to be desolate, they see a crowd of thousands of people on the shore. Now, if you were one of the disciples who thought you were getting away for a a nice, quiet time to rest and relax and just have some quality one-on-one time with Jesus. What are you thinking right about now? Well, let me help you get into the moment a little more. Maybe you're a school teacher. And so somebody says, you've been pushing, working. Uh, It's it's time for a break, and I've got this little cabin out by the lake, and and you and a couple of friends, we're going to load up in the car. We're going to go out there and just get away from everybody and everything. And as you turn this last corner on this tree-lined road and you're expecting to see this, this idyllic little cabin with a boat dock and you're looking forward to this time of rest, you notice there's this huge crowd of people there. And as you get closer, you notice it's all of your students. <laughs> and they're standing there with their, their book bags and various things and they're waving paper at you saying, oh, you can help us with our homework. And, and when you're done, our parents here all want parent-teacher conferences. Now, maybe you're a mechanic. So what you see instead is a long line of cars, and they're leaking every fluid known to man, right? And everybody's saying, my car first. If you're in the tech field, there are people there with laptops and PDAs and devices saying, I've got viruses, or my email's not working, or I need you to update. Are you feeling resting? This is going to be a real restful weekend. If you were the disciples and you see these crowds of thousands of people, you've just been ministering nonstop. You haven't even had time to eat. Would you have said to Jesus, hey, let's turn the boat around. Let's sail up and down and let these people chase us. And when they wear out and they can't find where we're going, I know, we're, we're all very spiritual people, aren't we? But Jesus has a different response, doesn't he? Look at verse 14. And when he went ashore, he saw a great multitude, and he felt compassion for them. Because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, the reason it says they're like a sheep without a shepherd is found there in Mark uh, 6, verses 17 through 28. It's what we just read in Luke 9, where it says Herod had beheaded John. Do you remember who John the Baptist was? 
the forerunner of the Messiah, this prophet who had been out in the wilderness calling people to repentance, prepare, you know, the, the Messiah's coming. And so they were a congregation, a flock that were following this, this prophet, this pastor, and suddenly he's dead. And they were truly a sheep without a shepherd. And now Jesus steps into this void and he says, I will minister to you. I will teach you. And as Jesus is teaching the people, the, the disciples come to him in verses 35 through 36. And they say, the place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and, and buy themselves something to eat. Now, that's a reasonable and caring request, isn't it? I mean, these guys love the crowd, right? They're saying, oh, Jesus, these, these people haven't eaten all day. It's late. They're going to faint with hunger. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing to, to, nowhere to buy food, and it's about to get dark. They're going to be stumbling down these back roads. Somebody may fall and get hurt. So it, it's time to send these guys away so they can be taken care of. Now, Jesus really knows what's going on. To the, to the disciples' credit, they've let Jesus teach all day. But now they're saying, hey, what about us? Wasn't this supposed to be our time? Weren't we supposed to come to this desolate area where nobody was so we could have some time with you, so we could be fed, so we could rest? And so they say, Jesus, get these guys out of here. You know, pastors love this, this passage because it's these people are hanging on every word. They don't even want to leave to go get something to eat. And, and what we often see are people are looking at their watches, tapping, going, does he know what time it is? You know, the Baptists are going to get to the buffet before we are. We've got to get out of here, right? It'd be like the ushers suddenly coming down saying, look, I know the teaching is great, but it's, it's way past lunchtime. Y'all need to get out of here. But Jesus says to these guys, look, I really know what's going on. And he says, you're worried about them eating? He says, okay, in verse 37, but he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. Now, in the Greek text, there's something called the emphatic construction here. And what that means is there's this, this hard emphasis. And the emphasis is on the word you. Have you ever seen those old Uncle Sam recruiting posters? And he's pointing that finger at you and it says, I want you. And what Jesus does is he points at them and says, you feed them. Now, I think it's tied to what we saw back in verse 30. In verse 30, it says, The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that what they had done and taught. Do you remember what happened in the commission? It said Jesus sent them out with his power, with his authority. And they go out, they've had a successful ministry trip, things have been going great, and they come back and they begin to read their own press. And they say, look at what we did. Look at the needs I met. Look at, look at the amazing things I did. And what Jesus says is, we've got to have a teachable moment here. We've got to recenter you guys to realize where what you do and how you do ministry, uh, what the real source is. It's not you. And he says, okay, you guys think you're pretty, pretty good at this. Uh, you do it. You feed these people. Now, the disciples still haven't quite... Uh, had the light bulb go on because look at verse 37. And he said to them, uh, and they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? You see, what happens is when Jesus says, you guys feed them, they say, okay. They get together as a group of 12. 
They start talking about, you know, look at the crowd. Matthew, the tax collector, whips out his abacus. He starts, you know, how many people, how much food? He goes, 200. 200 denarii. You see, a denarius was a coin that was the common day laborer's pay. The average person or soldier made a denarius a day. And so what they figure out is it's going to take 200 days worth of work to have the money needed to feed these people. And so they come back to Jesus and they say 200 denarii would, would barely buy bread. And they're expecting Jesus to say, oh, what was I thinking? You guys are right. That's way too much of a sacrifice for you to make. You know, they, they think it's a rhetorical question. And they're going, yeah, we thought so. And how many of us are like the disciples? How many times does a ministry opportunity come our way? We hear of a need or something, and what's our immediate reaction? Do we kind of huddle up? Do we look in our checkbook? Do we kind of look around in our calendar? Well, I think I, maybe I can find some time here. You know, do we do like the disciples and say, you want me to do what? What, God? You, you, you want me to go and serve in the children's ministry? Well, I haven't been to church in a couple of weeks. I'm finally here today. And if I go over there and serve, well, then I don't hear the sermon. And I haven't seen my friends. And yeah, I can't do that. We heard about the opportunity at Colonial Hills this morning. There's, there's over 50 people who serve in that ministry. And, and you're thinking, well, where am I going to find time in the week to go and tutor or be part of a Bible club or, or help? Or, and we immediately begin to say, what, what is it going to take from me? We hear of a, an opportunity, a building project. We, we hear of a need, and, and, and we say, you know, there's already too many people here already. When is it going to be about me? You know, I've been coming for years, and there's all these new people, and, 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 and we're focused on outreach and, and supporting missionaries and, and bringing in more people, and my ABF has had to change rooms, and, 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 and we're saying, what about me? Jesus, I need to be fed. I need some rest. I need some time. And those are all normal human reactions. And first, I want to tell you all thank you, because we have an amazing church. I've had the privilege of pastoring here for 12 years and watch this church time after time after time step up to build buildings, to open up things, to, to open up the Stone Oak campus, to create more room for more people, to plant churches. Uh, we've planted 13 churches in this city over our history. And... and you are amazing in the ways that you serve and you sacrifice. And I'm not, I'm not beating the sheep. There's no major need right now, so don't, don't brace yourself for the big ass that's coming. I'm not doing that. Because y'all are already serving and sacrificing and supporting the ministry here in amazing ways. But I'm sharing this because I understand when we read this passage how, what, what the focus is sometimes where we turn inward on ourselves. And instead of getting worn out, we need to look around and see all the new faces and say, these represent new lives that are being reached for Christ. Life change that's happening. And rather than letting these guys off the hook where Jesus says, what was I thinking? Look at verse 38. He says, well, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they, find out, when they found out, they said five and two fish. Now, the Gospel of John tells us where this food comes from. It's a little boy. They go throughout the crowd. Does anybody have any food? And, and, and they find a little boy who says, well, I've, I've got a single sack lunch. Mom, mom packed uh, five uh, 
rolls and two sardines for me, and they say, well, would you mind sharing that with Jesus? Oh, sure, here. And so they come to Jesus uh, with essentially a happy meal, right? It's a little boy's lunch. And Jesus says, well, what'd you find? And they put a happy meal in his hand, and they say, that's it. Jesus says, great, feed them. And they go, Lord, um, that happy meal in your hand, that's all we've got. Look at the crowd. And Jesus says, yeah, I see the crowd. Feed them. And, and the, these guys are, are wondering, Jesus, do you see the people? And Jesus says, I see the crowd. The problem is you don't see the Son of God. You, you don't see whose hand this, this happy meal is in. You know, if I were to stand up here right now with a basketball in my hand, uh, the basketball would be worth about $25. But if you were to put that same basketball in the hand of Tony Parker, how much is that basketball now worth? Millions of dollars, right? Because it all depends whose hands it's in. If, if you were to put a tennis racket in my hand, that thing would be worthless. The only thing I can do with a tennis ball is hit it not over the net but the fence, right? <laughs> but if you put that tennis racket in the hand of somebody like Serena or Venus Williams, that's a Wimbledon championship because it all depends whose hands it's in. And if you put a slingshot in my hand, well, that's trouble. But if you put it in the hand of King David when he was still a shepherd boy, God can use that slingshot to slay Goliath, the giant, because it all depends whose hands it's in. If you give me a staff, I can stir some water up with it, but if you put it in the hand of Moses, he can part the Red Sea because it all depends whose hands it's in. If you give me a couple of nails, I I can build you uh, something with it. But if you put those nails in the hand of Jesus Christ, it equals eternal life for all who will come to him and receive him as Savior because he died on the cross to pay the penalty of death we owe for our sins. Because it all depends on whose hands it's in. And as you're sitting here this morning, you may be looking at your life saying, I don't have a whole lot that I can give to Jesus. My time, my talents, my treasures, they're so limited. And friends, it really depends whose hands it's in. Because if you put a happy meal in the hands of the Son of God, it can feed a crowd of thousands. As Jesus holds this little boy's lunch, he's about to show them what a happy meal in his hands can do. Look at verses 39 through 44. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. And they sat down by groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And he broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And it says they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Now, when it says there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves, there's, there's different Greek words. One word is anthropos, which is a word that can be masculine and feminine. That's not the word used here. It's andres. Andres is used only of the male gender. So when he says there were 5,000 men who ate, uh, as you look at Matthew's account of the gospel, in Matthew 14, 21, it says there were about 5,000 men who ate aside from women and children. 
So we call this the feeding of the 5,000, but in all um, honesty, it could be the feeding of the 10,000 or the 15,000. If there was a, a woman with each man or if there were a, a, one child with, with one man. So this miracle is even bigger than what you've thought of before if you've only seen it as feeding 5,000. That alone is mind-blowing. And how, how did this whole crowd get fed? Well, it says in verse 41, Jesus took five loaves and two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. Jesus is God. He, he could have just multiplied it without doing this. Why did Jesus stop and look up? There are other times we see where it says Jesus looked up and he spoke to his father in heaven because he said, I want people to understand that God hears me. And what he's doing here is he's trying to direct the disciples upward. Where do you go to get what you need to meet the needs of people? So as Jesus looks up to heaven, he prays. He begins to hand out the food. I want you to imagine you're at the AT&T Center, you know, where the Spurs play. And so you're standing center court, and it's you and Jesus and 11 other people. And as you're standing center court, the crowd here would have easily filled the lower level of the the arena, and if it were the upper numbers, then the whole place could almost be full. And all the concession stands are closed. Nobody's eaten all day. Everybody's hungry. And you're standing center court holding this one single sack lunch. And all these people are zeroed in on you and the lunch. And Jesus says, uh, see section 101 over here? Remember, they're seated in groups of 50 or 100. He says, I'm going to have you help me feed this group over here. And you're looking at that one lunch going, this is going to be good. And Jesus, as you're standing there with your, your hands empty, blesses the food, he begins to distribute it, and he's piling the food up into your hand to the point where you suddenly have 50 or 100 box lunches. Your arms are full, you leave, you go walking over, you go to section 101, you lay all the food out in front of the people, you look, oh, there's another group that doesn't have anything, your hands are empty, you turn around, you go back down, you go to center court, you come to Jesus, he fills your arms again, you turn around, you go up there, you feed that group. Done. Oh, no, there's section 102. Those people are waiting. How many trips back and forth, back and forth, would it take for 12 people to feed a crowd this size 50 or 100 lunches at a time? A lot. And at what point where every time you go to Christ, your hands are empty, suddenly they're full, you go to the people, you meet a need, but now your hands are empty and you see there's additional need, would it have taken before the light finally goes on and they go, we need to go to Jesus to get what we need to meet the needs of people? You know, I've learned a long time ago in ministry that if I try to meet the needs of people based upon what Roger Poupart can do, uh, it's not going to go very far. If I try to do that, then I'm going to be like an Aggie faith healer. You know what an Aggie faith healer can do? He can make a lame man blind. (laughs) Expected more hisses out of that. You're disappointing this longhorn. So, And it may be that some of you this morning are like Aggie faith healers. You're lame this morning because you've been limping along because you've been trying to do it based upon what you can do. And that's why you're worn out. And that's why you're thinking, I, I, I can't do ministry. 
Friends, as you read the Bible, John 15 says, it gives us the illustration where it says, if we abide in Christ, it gives this picture of a vine, and it says, if we abide in him, we will be able to bear much fruit. And, and Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say some things, few things well. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And yet so many of us are trying to do things based upon what we can do. What we alone can do. And Jesus says, one happy meal in your hand is not going to go very far with the, the abundance of need around you. Now, some have not started to serve because you say, well, I'm damaged goods, and God would never use me. My, my life is a mess. I'm broken, various things. You know, the Bible tells us to comfort one another with the comfort we've received. It tells us to minister out of our own life and our own experience. Some of you have experiences in your life where there's brokenness or messes you've made, dumb taxes you've paid in your own life that can be used to help somebody else avoid those things. And God doesn't want you to believe the lie of our enemy who tells us God is done with you. If you were here last week, we talked about how God doesn't love us this much or this much, but he loves us this much, and he spread his arms wide, and he welcomed us. Romans 5.8 tells us he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus says if you've gone off the rails and you've made a mess of your life, I'm not done with you. I can take and redeem those things, and I can use them in ways. But we've got to come to him, and we've got to allow him to use us. Sometimes what we do is we say, well, I've come to Christ, but I, I really don't have anything to offer him. Well, what the Bible tells us is when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, he not only gives us the gift of eternal life, but he also gives us something called a spiritual gift, sometimes multiple spiritual gifts. And spiritual gifts are divine enablement, special abilities to meet needs. And I've talked to people who say, well, Roger, I don't really serve because I don't, I don't have a good spiritual gift. I got a white elephant gift. <laughs> you know, they, they think that when God was handing out gifts, Monday was for mercy, Tuesday was teaching, Wednesday was whatever, and they say, I'm a Monday person, I got mercy. You know, all I can do is pray with somebody. All I can do is cook a meal. I... You know, I, I don't have a teaching gift like you. That's, you know. Well, let me ask you something. If you just had surgery and uh, your family or you were going without food and, and you were needing somebody to come in and minister alongside the needs in your family, and I knock on the door and I say, well, I'm here today uh, to feed you. Uh, open your Bible to such and such. I'm going to preach you a sermon. Would you be looking around going, where are the mercy people who feed us with food? We'd really like one of those people to show up this morning. You see, 1 Corinthians 12.22 tells us those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The Bible gives a picture of the body of Christ being a human body, and he says, what good would it be if we were all eyes or hands or feet? He says, that's, that's not the way the body's designed. There's all these different parts, and there's a reason God has brought these different gifts together. Friends, God doesn't make junk. He didn't give you a bad gift. He gave you a gift, as Corinthians tells us, that is indispensable, no matter what your gift is. As we talk about the needs of the people being met here, um, what would have happened if this one little boy had said, well, all I've got is five stale rolls and two stinky fish. Nobody's going to eat. But he said, well, it's not much, but I'll give Jesus what I have. 
And the whole crowd was fed. And as the crowd is fed, I want you to look at verse 42. It says, all the people ate, not just a little snack, but until they were satisfied. They are stuffed. They're full. And and as we read something like this, and the reason some of us again don't serve is we start to say, yeah, but what about me? Do you remember the disciples? Jesus said, you guys have been so busy serving, you haven't had time to eat. And now they've been feeding thousands of people. But God doesn't forget about them. I want you to look at verse 43. Because after the people are fed, look at what verse 43 says, and they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. How many disciples were there? It's not a trick. How many? How many baskets are left over? Jesus says, I've got a lunch for each and every one of you. Not just a little lunch, a huge basket. Jesus didn't forget about them. And what I found is that as I am ministering, as I'm trying to meet the needs of others, God often feeds or meets my needs as I work to meet the needs of others. I have the privilege of studying God's word. And as I prepare a sermon to teach, to to feed you, I get fed through what I'm teaching. There are times I go to encourage somebody. And, and what I find is many times I leave the hospital or the home or the place more encouraged. Uh, I went to help them, and I end up leaving encouraged, saying, wow, that was wonderful. Have you ever found that in your own life? Have you found as you're trying to minister to others, your needs are met that you're ministered to as well? As we prepare to end today, I want you to ask yourself a question. Are you going to God to get what you need to meet the needs that you will face? Are you going to God to get what you need to meet the needs that you're going to face? You see, you're not standing center court at the AT&T arena this morning, but we are in the center of San Antonio. And when you leave here, you're going to go back to the center of many of your neighborhoods. It may be in San Antonio, it may be in a suburb, it may be another state where you're just visiting today. And you're going to find yourself in a place where there are needs all around you that you cannot meet. It's not just within the doors of our church, it's in the places where you go to work, in the bases you serve, in the schools that that you're a part of. And are you going to God to get what you need? I want you to ask yourself that question as we go to God in prayer. Will you join me please as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, as we close today, we know that there are huge needs all around us. Needs that are so much bigger than what we can do. And Father, there are needs even among us right here. And the the greatest need that, that some have is for you, Jesus. There are people here who, uh, just as we've been talking about today, have been trying to do things based upon what they can do. And some people are... Uh, trying to get to you in heaven by how good they are, by the works they do. And you make very clear to us that's going to fall short as well. You tell us, Lord, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of you, not as a result of works. Father, we have to go to you to receive the gift of new and eternal life. And I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's not yet turned to you, who's not yet accepted your death in their place, that today would be the day that they do that. And Father, for the rest of us who have come to faith in you, who have accepted that gift of eternal life, as we trust you to meet the biggest need we will ever face in our life, as you conquered sin and death and our enemy Satan, 
Would we trust you, Lord, in our day-to-day needs as well as to meet the needs around us? So, Lord, thank you for the privilege of being part of ministry. Thank you for trusting us in our schools, our workplaces, our neighborhoods with being those who will be used by you to help feed others. Would we turn to you to get what we need? We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Will you stand and sing this closing song of worship, please?